Good evening, Hope Reform Baptist Church. Good to uh, hear that you are here. Good to see that you are here. Now, can you please open up with me to the book of Galatians? We're in chapter 2. Well done, everybody. We made it out of chapter 1. We're five sermons in, and we are in uh, chapter 2. And uh, the the, the book of Galatians is, uh, if we can summarize it really easily, it's a defense and then a proclamation of Paul's apostleship and also his gospel. So, so his office, his authority, as well as his message that he preaches, this is the dual uh, uh, point of Galatians, what he is both defending against the attackers and proclaiming unapologetically. So the heretics uh, uh, came into these churches that Paul had planted around the Roman province called Galatia. These heretics had come in and they were Jewish in origin. They had traveled up from Jerusalem, sort of Judaism HQ, persecuting Christians HQ in the first century was mainly and mostly those, those uh, 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 the, the, the Jewish nation. Um, and they came to Galatia and they said, you know, Paul, he's actually, he's actually not all that authoritative he was ordained by the Jerusalem apostles, okay? So the Jerusalem apostles were largely the other 12, the first 12 of Jesus, minus Judas who hung himself, plus Matthias that they brought in. And those guys largely ministered in and around Judea. And so this mindset came up among the, the pro-Jewish uh, uh, so-called Christians that we need to uh, uh, go and tell uh, the Galatian Christians Paul was ordained by them, he answers to them, he submits to them, he gets his authority from them, and you wonder, why is that such a big deal, or why is that their argument? Because what it then allows them to say is, we came from Jerusalem, and we know that those apostles disagree with Paul, they say that just like the Old Testament, you still have to get circumcised, that's the way to find yourself in Jesus and saved from hell, and if you tell me Paul disagrees, well, that's all right, I've already dealt with that by telling you that the guys down in Jerusalem are authoritative over the top of him. So, the last half of the book, and we're basically going to get there from chapter 2, verse 15, in a couple of weeks, is his defense and proclamation of the fact that only faith in Christ alone justifies somebody before God and not any works that we do according to Old or New Testament law. That's the gospel. But before he gets there, he has to defend his apostleship. He has to get rid of these silly ideas that he was sent by the Jerusalem apostles and that, that they are the authority over the top of him. So last week in chapters one, chapter 1, verse 11 to 24, Paul starts on this sort of biographical uh, storyline. And what he started saying so far is, uh, here's why I don't answer to the other apostles. Because I didn't get my apostleship from them or my message from them. I received the gospel message from Jesus himself when he visited me in the desert of Arabia and when he met me on the horse that I was riding on the way to Damascus. So in other words, here's, G here's Paul saying, I didn't hear the gospel from the apostles. There's nothing wrong with them. God bless them. They're God's apostles. They're sent from Jesus Christ. But they didn't send me or pick me or teach me. Jesus did. Now, again, that might not sound like a really big point to make. But if you can look with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You'll find in verses 21 through 26. In those first 11, because Judas had hung himself. In the first 11 apostles' mindset. 
they had a certain level of requirements that one must fulfill in order to be an apostle, all right? So I'm sorry about your friend from the third world who added you on Facebook and asks you to send gold and money who calls himself an apostle because he had a dream. It's not enough. You don't get to call yourself an apostle just because you had some imagined revelation or even a real dream or vision. What makes somebody an apostle in the apostles' mind is these three things. First of all, in verse 21, they say, we, you know, we need to pick somebody, so who can we pick? Well, obviously, only people that meet the requirements to be an apostle. So their first understanding in verse 21 is, we need to find somebody who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, until the day when he was take, taken up from us. <coughs> so in other words, <coughs> the first requirement for an apostle is that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching. That's what they're saying. Otherwise, you can't be a sent one to go and teach everything he's commanded if you didn't, weren't even witness to it. So that's the first thing. Secondly, they wanted someone who, verse 20, the end of verse 22 says, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So this means that this, this had to be a somebody. If they were going to be preaching and then dying for the fact that Jesus was raised from the grave and is alive now forevermore, I saw it, I touched his body, I was with him, we ate with him, I, I, I give my witness to this fact, then guess what? They, they have to have been a witness of that fact. So again, modern-day apostles or mere dream that they have does not qualify somebody as being a biblical apostle. They haven't seen, touched, handled the very body of Jesus raised from the dead. Therefore, they have no right to the name. But thirdly, you see them go on in verse 25. They allowed Jesus to reveal his own personal choice from heaven. And they do this Old Testament thing where they cast lots. They throw dice. And they say, Jesus, you pick. The, the only two guys who fit these other two requirements, they're here. However, we can't pick them. We can't choose them. We can't vote on them because then they're not apostles of Jesus. They're apostles of the apostles. So they understand Jesus himself has to personally choose someone. And so they cast lots and pray over it. And they say the cast falls to Matthias. Um, uh, in verse 25 in chapter 1 of Acts, it says, show which one of these two you have chosen. So these are the three requirements. They lived with Jesus, saw his ministry in the flesh. They witnessed his resurrection. And thirdly, Jesus chose them and called them to be apostles himself. So does that just not completely, outrightly destroy any claim to being a, a modern day apostle these days? Of course it does. Nobody fits these requirements. Now, the question we could ask then is, hang on, hang on. You're not just throwing away the weird, uh, uh, hyper-charismatic apostle in a shiny blue suit that drives a Rolls Royce and flies a jet. You're not, you're not just casting him out. By these three requirements, haven't we also ruled out the apostle Paul from being an apostle? And that's what last week's text really labored to prove is that even though Paul acknowledges this is weird timing on God's part, this was a strange occurrence, it's a one-off and it's unique, yet Paul was able, by God's miraculous appearance to him in Jesus, he was able to tick off each of those requirements after Jesus' human bodily uh, uh, representation on earth. 
And this happened, we're told, last, in last week's text, this happened by Jesus appearing to him physically, not, not merely being a vision, but actually coming to him physically so that Paul could touch and handle and see and witness the resurrected body of Jesus that is now glorified. And that he then spent time, he tells us, in the desert of Arabia. And it seems to be there, that's really the only gap on the timeline of Paul's life that we as theologians and scholars can sort of pinpoint when he got what he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, which is all of these amazing visions, these visitations to heaven, these out-of-body experiences, and all of the teaching of Jesus. So in this weird, unique, miraculous way, Paul has been chosen by Jesus personally. He's been a a witness to Jesus' life and teaching for three years, and he has seen and handled the risen body of Jesus Christ. That's what he proved last week at the end of chapter 1. And now we sort of come to chapter 2, and from verse 1 we start realizing, is it the case then that Paul had no care about the other apostles, and he never saw them and had no overlap with them? No, that's not the case. We're going to see a little bit further uh, further tonight the timeline of the Apostle Paul. Already, Paul has been saved, trained by Jesus in the desert, visited uh, Jerusalem uh, where he preached very briefly for two weeks, went back up to his hometown of, of Tarsus, and then was taken by Barnabas over into the church of Antioch to be a preacher. Then this is where it comes up in Acts chapter 11. He's then sent down with the others because of a vision given from God to go and visit Jerusalem again. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Remember Titus. He'll be a very important player. Taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order that In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to go to the circumcised, that's the Jewish nation, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing we were already eager to do. Verse 11. But... When Peter, here his Greek name Cephas, when Cephas came up to Antioch, right? This is Paul's stomping ground. This is the Gentile Jewish church. This is the Gentile region. When he came up to my church in Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Catholics hate this verse. He's the first pope getting his butt handed to him publicly in front of the church because he was wrong about something. 
The Pope is not above the Bible. God's revelation is above the Pope. Amen. And the, the Pope's not even under the submission of the Bible because he's, he's a heretic. So scrap that as well. It's not the structure of God. Here we are though, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But then when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But... When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? May God bless his own inerrant and powerful word in our midst this evening. All we find here tonight is, is a few questions answered as Paul keeps... This is really just part two to last week. As he keeps on defending the fact that his apostleship is not from the other apostles. He does not submit to them. They are not in disagreement with him. Because all of these things were so essential to the Galatian heretics and the argument against Paul. So in this t tonight, really what we're answering is the question... Do the apostles in Jerusalem disagree with Paul? And firstly, we'll ask, do they have authority over Paul even if they did disagree? And the answer to both of them is no. So we ask the question, do the other 12 apostles, largely around Jerusalem and Judea, do they have authority over Paul? First of all, we're going to say no, because it's just genius how Paul writes this. Verse 1 of chapter 2 doesn't say, the apostles beckoned me. They called, I answered, I'm at their beck and call, like a dog and a whistle. My master called, I have to... No, he doesn't say that. Anybody else gets beckoned by the apostles in the church, you have to go. But Paul's an apostle. So the apostles don't invite him. Who does? God. God tells him to go down through a prophetic vision and a revelation that was made to him. So he's saying, God sent me, by the way, not them, not you. God sent me. Uh, uh, this is for us, if you're making notes, in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, uh, Agabus comes up and gives a prophetic revelation that there's a famine coming and Judea is going to be struck particularly hard. Uh, churches raise money, send them help. And then uh, we don't know what Paul's revelation was. Maybe it was him being told he has to be the one to take it. But we see that him, then Barnabas and Paul, and then what he also tells us here, Titus, go down to Jerusalem to deliver that money. So it wasn't the apostles that sent for him, it was God. Secondly, we see all these names that Paul uses to describe the apostles. Did you notice how like blasé he was throughout the whole passage? In verse 2, he calls them those who seemed influential. In verse 6, twice he calls them those who seemed influential. The end of verse, in the middle of verse 6, he says, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And in verse 9, he says, those who seemed to be pillars. He's saying their status is legitimate, but their status is not above me. Their authority is legitimate, but their authority is not over me. He, he acknowledges they were apostles before me. They were apostles before me on the timeline. They are not apostles over me. Because that, that makes you not an apostle. If you're under, if you answer to anybody but Jesus himself, you're not an apostle. That's Paul's argument. 
This is why it's so unique and we should guard the use of that language apostle so carefully. So he uses those names to them to show, I know they're apostles, but they're not my bosses. This is what he's communicating to Galatia. Then also, thirdly, you might think, but doesn't he come to them? Like we see this in verse 2. I went up to them in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. It sounds like he actually is kind of worried. That he actually is jittering in his boots and going, hang on, what if they do disagree? What if I did get my gospel wrong? What if my whole ministry has been in vain? But we know that's not what he's thinking. Because that's literally been his argument for the whole of Galatians so far, is that he never worries about that. We know that he can't be feeling that because to doubt his ministry is to doubt Jesus because he's just told us Jesus is the one who sent me. That's not what he's worrying about. In the English, it comes out kind of like he is afraid of, oh, what if I'm wrong? I'll check with the apostles. It's not what's happening. Here's what is the better reading. Paul is going down to them to submit his gospel to them. Here's what I'm preaching. Tell me what you're preaching. I I have a little inkling concern that we might not be 100% unified on this, though I trust in the Lord that we will. But if there's a disagreement, I'm not going to go edit my message. I'm just going to prepare for the war that you're going to start on me. That's what he's doing. He spent these 14 years ministering for Jesus, preaching the gospel, establishing churches around the Antioch region and probably over in Tarsus, maybe also in Arabia and in Damascus, which we read a little bit less of. He's been establishing Christians and churches. The vanity he's afraid of is not that his gospel is wrong, but that if we come to a disagreement between me and the other 12, guess what's going to happen? They're going to dog my steps, find all of the churches I planted, turn them against me, and inform them that my gospel was wrong. Paul's not leaving room in case he's wrong here. He's just getting ready for whatever the future battle and fight is. I remember some movie when there's a a fellow who was sort of cornered one of those one guy against a hundred sort of movies. The best there is. And uh, he, uh, you know, he sort of starts taking his jacket off and they're like, come on, we've got you surrounded. Uh, uh, don't worry about it. He goes, all right, how many of you are there? And they go, mate, there's 50 of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of giving up now? And he goes, no, no, I just want to know how many of you I need to kill. That's Paul. He, he's not, he doesn't actually have division with the apostles. He's not threatened by the apostles, nor is he threatening them. But when it says that he's coming because he's worried it might have been in vain, it's not the gospel that would have been in vain. It's the fact that if it turns out you guys are wrong, you're going to go and destroy all the work I've done in churches. So I want to make sure there is actually a unity, not because you're my authority, but because you're my partners and brothers in the gospel. So let's make sure we're on the same page. But then he also goes down, I mean, if you look at verse 11 to 14, the part we spoke about, this is what you need to do. If you ever go to the Vatican and you ever, for some reason, get with an earshot of the Pope, just be really biblical. And if the Pope really is Peter's, Peter's uh, predecessor, uh, uh, then, then this is what you need to do. Find him, put your finger in his chest, tell him how wrong he is, confront him in, everybody, in front of everybody, because that's what the Apostle Paul did. So, so he comes to Peter, and then when there's a disagreement, is it Peter rebuking Paul? Or is it Paul rebuking Peter? What Paul is showing to the Galatians is there's no disunity between us. There's no harsh disagreement between me and the other apostles. But it is so much the case that they're not my bosses that when there was a disagreement, guess who was in the right and guess who was in the tail between the legs running away party? I confronted Peter, not the other way around. So we might think here then, okay, so so does the other apostles have any authority over Paul? None whatsoever. 
Now, this might, again, this might sound like, what a weird half of a sermon to preach. Yeah? If you feel like that, I get it. But it's in the Bible, so it's really important, first of all. But you will realize just how important it is when you start going and reading modern evangelical commentaries on the Bible. I've met pastors who will tell me, I'm just not sure Paul was in his right mind when he wrote that. You know, he was, in, he, was in a, he was in a dungeon for a long time. He would have been dehydrated. Who knows what he was thinking? That, that's not what a biblical scholar thinks. You're an anti-biblical scholar. People will, will literally pit Jesus against Paul in what they wrote and what they said. People will literally try and start churches and convince you that there's actually these interesting factoids that you didn't know about Paul. And it's my job. If, if I read church history, starting with the book of Galatians and the book of Acts, and I see that Paul's first church planning missionary area is then dogged with this lie, then it's my job to prepare, give you some mouth guards and some wrapped hands so that you can defend yourself, your family, your Bible study, this church against any joker and fool that wants to cast any aspersion and any doubt onto the authority of Paul as a standalone apostle under the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important. And then we could ask the question, okay, so, so did you, Paul, when you went down to Jerusalem, did you and the apostles not agree? This is what the Galatian heretics are telling us. You teach faith alone. The apostles in, 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 in Jerusalem teach circumcision and faith gets you into the kingdom. If you're a Gentile and you're uncircumcised, but you believe in Jesus, you can't be saved. You have to be circumcised to even step foot in Jerusalem, let alone be considered as saved. And here's where Paul starts bringing it up. In verse 3, he's answering the question, did the apostles, even though they're not my bosses, did they disagree with me? No. Verse 3 tells us that he took Titus with him who was an uh, uncircumcised Gentile who was saved at, at some point during Paul's sort of ministry in Tarsus and in Antioch. At some point, Titus came to faith under Paul's preaching and, and then he was, he was with Paul in Antioch and came down with him to Jerusalem. Now, here was the heretic's claim. Any of the apostles down in Jerusalem would demand a Gentile believer to be circumcised. They absolutely would. Paul's not requiring it. The apostles would require it. And here is a fact, full stop, destruction to that argument because he took Titus with him to Jerusalem and they never demanded that he get circumcised. They didn't even have a problem with him. They, sh they shared the right hand of fellowship. They shook his hand. They received Titus into their number. They did not consider him as unclean. Here's a case study and it is absolute proof that the lies of the heretics are just that. Abject lies. The apostles in Jerusalem agree with Paul. Now, I like to think that one of Paul's buddies up in Antioch suggested to him, I'm glad you're taking Barnabas, a Jew, you know, to go to Jerusalem. It won't trigger anybody. Remember to leave Titus behind. I know he's a pal. No, he's a buddy. No, he's a 2IC. Leave him up here. He's uncircumcised. It'll be a whole thing. And Paul went, that's a tremendous idea. I'm taking Titus. And they said, but you might trigger the, 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 the circumcision happy guys. He goes, that sounds like a great idea. He goes, oh, but, but it might be received wrongly. He goes, that's just exactly what I am uh, uh, counting on. I hope they do. I hope they're offended by the freedom that is in the gospel of Jesus. It is good 
for those who get offended by the freedom of the gospel of Jesus to get offended every now and then, intentionally even, so that they would learn where the boundaries of Christian freedom and legalism really are. Paul's pretty happy to take down Titus. He absolutely knew the problems it would cause. And in fact, we see it as he says the the false brothers came in. They tried to convince us to circumcise Titus. Now, maybe you remember Timothy. And at this point, you think, did Paul just really dislike Timothy and like Titus? Because if you know, Titus and Timothy were both his right-hand men sent across the world to support churches. But he made Timothy get circumcised. He let Titus out of that. Was it a personal beef? Did Timothy just grade him wrong way one Sabbath and say, that's it, the law says, go chop chop. Uh, actually, and this, this gives, per, this is, gives uh, amazing example, I don't know how to say followers example, but in the spirit of it, there's a great example here, in Timothy. He got circumcised as an adult male for the sake of the mission. Because he was half Jewish, The law actually required that he would get circumcised, but he wasn't. Therefore, he's a Jew out of accord with the law. And since Paul wanted to take him with him on the mission, and his mission operation was basically go into Jewish synagogues and then preach the gospel of Jesus until they kick him out and then minister to the Gentiles, he wouldn't be able to take Timothy with him to preach the gospel lest he was circumcised. So Timothy, for the sake of the mission, got circumcised. We don't talk about that often because it's kind of awkward, but give the guy the props that is due. Pray to him and, uh, not pray to him, goodness me, pray to the Lord and thank God for this amazing example in a guy who, why? For the mission that's different to Titus. Titus, they wanted to get circumcised for the sake of the law just because they still thought it applied to Christians and even Gentiles. And in that arena, Paul says, you don't get to stamp or constrict or restrict on Titus's freedom whatsoever. There's no ethnic reason for him to be circumcised. There's no missional reason for him to get circumcised. In fact, Paul says, for the sake of the Gentile churches, right? Here's these Jewish Christians worried about how it might look. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm worried about the precedent it will set if we keep on limiting Christian freedom because of people with seared, old covenant, uninformed, ignorant consciences. You don't get to require circumcision of Gentiles, and as Paul will say later on in the book, or any other act of the old covenant law. Paul stood firm because it would set a tremendous precedent for the gospel among the uncircumcised. So did they disagree? No. The apostles in Jerusalem... And Paul the Apostle agreed perfectly about the question of should Gentile believers be circumcised. They did not believe it would. And then in verse 6, he in fact says, those who were influential, they added nothing to me. This is not to say that they had no encouragement, there was no spiritual fulfillment being with them. What he's saying is, they didn't edit, qualify, or add to my gospel at all. They got the red marker out. They said, come on, Paul, tell us, show us your systematic theology. Show us how you exegete the law. Tell us how you see these things prophesied in the Messiah. They got out their red pen to edit it, gave it a full 100 out of 100. In fact, they probably learned from him a few things as well. They didn't change anything. Circumcision was not required. And then they recognized that Paul had grace, he had apostleship, and he had a ministry And that's in verse 7 to 9. They shake his hand. They put their right arm of fellowship out to Barnabas and Paul and Titus and say, it is evident 
that God in Jesus has called you to the Gentiles, just as he has called me, Peter, and the other apostles to the Jews. God be with you. God bless you. And then they teamed up kind of missionally and said, you go to those guys, we'll go to these guys, but both of us got to agree to look after the poor. Perfect, perfect apostolic agreement. So was there then no disagreements whatsoever? Well, we touched on one. That while Paul and Titus and Barnabas were down in Jerusalem, verse 4 to 5 tells us that some people had a big problem with Titus not being circumcised. An enormous problem. He's in the holy city. He's among the saints. He's defiling us. He's trying to sit and eat at our tables. This is a problem. These apparently converted Pharisee claiming to be Christians, they, this is what they were claiming. Paul has very strong language for them in verse 4 and 5. He says in verse 4, they are false brothers. They were false. They're not converted. They were false converts. That's what Paul tells us. They were false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. There's three languages, three words there sort of showing us that this was a, this was a cunning, serpentine, satanic maneuver on the church. Now, we don't know. Is it the case that they were false converts and they were just ignorant but, 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 but legitimate? They, they were genuine. They thought the Lord taught this. They were just self-deceived. They thought they were converted, but they didn't understand the gospel. Satan then would be the one who's sneaking them in, spying it out and sending them. Or is it the case that the Pharisee party, maybe even the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, had allocated a little, a little secret service party who would infiltrate CIA style, would infiltrate this little uh, uh, fringe, extreme right-wing Christian group, this cult, who are worshipping Jesus, the carpenter as the Messiah, infiltrate them, figure out what they teach, divide them and distract them. Is that what they were saying? We don't know what Paul is saying, but one way or the other, they are unconverted people, pseudo-anthropos, uh, uh, pseudo-delphos uh, uh, is the language here, which, which means fake brother, false brother, pseudo-Christians, says they actually weren't, weren't, weren't saved. So before you come and try and say, well, I, just, I know Paul got heated up about it, it's just not that big a deal. No, Paul says, if you come up to me and despite teaching and despite explanation, you stand fast on the, on the, on the position that something needs to be added to faith for you to be saved, I'm just going to assume you're a false brother and we're going to bring you through the process of church discipline so that we can recognize you as a false convert and a non-Christian. Savable. Savable if you place your lot in with Christ and have faith alone and learn the true gospel. But if you keep on dividing and pollu dividing the church and polluting the gospel, the church will have no course of action but to consider you as a false convert and remove you from the table. <clears throat> so, of course, there was some disagreement. But here, uh, uh, but it was with... False brothers, not with the Jerusalem apostles. I love how angry Paul got in, in, uh, in uh, Acts and what we see here uh, in verses 4 and 5. He says in verse 5, they came in so that they might bring us into slavery. That's a big call. They were adding to the law, which means they were acting like God. Only Jesus is the Lord of the conscience. They were adding laws, claiming to be Jesus. Claiming they had the same authority over you as God the Son. Claiming they had a right, to, the same right to your life as Jesus who bled and died for you did. That's what they were doing. 
trying to bring you into slavery. And he says, verse 5, to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. And you just know exactly what those guys went home telling their wives and their friends and the church uh, uh, tone police council. And they just told them, you know, guys, we're really worried about Paul. He's just, he's such a bigot, you know. He's just so narrow-minded. He didn't even get, like the whole argument we had, he didn't admit he was wrong once. You know, he's just, he was so hard-headed. You know, all we wanted to do was just fiddle with the gospel, like a touch Just bring these brothers into extra law obedience a touch. I'm sure the circumcised parties would disagree it is only a little bit. Nonetheless, here's Paul. He gave them no ground and he's just being, he's being blogged about. They have a whole podcast series on the the rise and fall of Paul the Apostle and how he turned into such an animal and they're angry at him. He's so unwielding and hard-headed and here's what Luther says. Here's what Luther says. All right, and I love this quote. I was once told when I was trying to define and get out of a pastor what he believed about the atonement and the fact that he didn't believe that God's wrath really got, it, got, got, got poured out on the cross. And, I mean, does God's righteousness even come into this? Look, look, we all believe that Jesus died and let's all just believe in that and be fine, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to press it and get a definition on this. And he goes, dude, you, you're beating a dead horse. Like, man, the animal I'm looking at is not dead yet, actually. No, I'm not beating a dead horse. This is the gospel. Here's what Luther said. It's like, like, as we think, standing up for the gospel, being kind and caring, what's the relationship? I don't want to be called obstinate and hard-headed and bigoted. Here's what Luther said. Cursed to hell be that humility which here yields and submits itself. Which here yields, and, like on the matter of the gospel and Christian freedom, if it yields and submits itself to its enemies, then cursed be that humility. Nay, rather, let every Christian man here be proud and spare not, except and unless he will thus deny Christ. Wherefore, God assisting me, my plan then is to have a forehead so hard that it is harder than all men's foreheads. Here, I take upon me this title, according to the Latin proverb, Sido Nuli, I yield to none. Yes, I am glad with all my heart to be called rebellious, and obstinate. And here I confess that I am ever, that I ever am and ever will be stout and stern and will not give one inch place to any creature. He's referring Galatians, apostle or angel. Now, as, con, uh, 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 as concerning faith's hold of the gospel, we ought to be invincible and more hard, if it can be, than the most adamant stone. But as far as love goes, we ought to be gentle and more flexible than the reed or the leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield to everything. Love, in humility, yields to all things and is gentle. This is Timothy, willing to get circumcised if it means that he might win more Jews to the gospel. But the other example is Paul defending Titus. Get away from his Christian liberty. Call me harder and more pig-headed than any stone or animal. I don't care. I'm proud of the title. Thank you very much. I'll have it written on my tombstone. Paul fought those false brothers tooth and nail. And then if we are still asking the question, so, so Paul, so there was no disagreements between you and the apostles? 
He goes, well, if I give you that idea, and then you go and ask Peter, he probably will mention one time that I just lost it at him in Antioch. So I'll, I'll just make sure you're aware of that story so it doesn't sound like I'm hiding any truth. And that, that's verse 11 to 14. Yeah, I did. We did have it now. We're going to go into more detail about that next week. But it's worth bringing in for us to remember. The apostles, the other apostles were not above Paul. They were equal to Paul. The other apostles did not disagree with Paul. They perfectly agreed with Paul. The only discontinuity and disunity was between the false brothers who were then shoved out and Paul and the other apostles. But with the other apostles, there was perfect unity until Peter acted out of fear and cowardice up in Antioch. Paul gives us here a sampling, sort of as we lean towards a close. Paul gives us a sampling here for kind of a spectrum of false teachers or bad pastors. I've witnessed it just this week, fairly often, Christians will sort of come out with some blog post or something and go, you know, this teacher has a different view on the six days of creation. He's a false teacher, wolf in sheep clothing. You know, man, that's, that's some pretty severe language. You devalue the warning and the weight of the language like false prophet, false teacher, wolf. You actually devalue and and it's counterproductive to overuse those words. It's like putting a big warning sticker on every sharp edge of the construction site. People go, okay, this, these don't really mean much to me. This is just sort of inflammatory language. Then they fall down a pit or get shocked with 240 volts. The language of false teacher, false prophet is heavy language. Chapter 1, when Paul spoke about the accursed that is not something that you just put on someone you disagree with on smaller things. Here's, here's a bit of a spectrum for us. First of all, right over on the left-hand side, we've got false teacher. This is other language for this in Scripture from Jesus is whitewashed tombs, snakes, dogs. From the prophets, we get whores, false prophets, servants of Satan in the New Testament. An example of this would be Judas, would be the Galatian heretics. What's their salvation status? They are accursed, and we should think of them as enemies of Jesus. Do all that you can to rid them out, get rid of them, and avoid them. Actively, these are the people who actively deny, not just wonder about it, but actively deny and reject and contradict core doctrines of the gospel. Like, Jesus is God. Jesus literally rose physically. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. God is triune in nature. These sorts of things. Faith is our only requirement to be saved. They actively deny or contradict those. If this is your pastor, don't apologize. Don't go back next week. But like Lot's wife out of Sodom, sprint. Take your family and run and block his number so that they don't keep calling you. Find a new church because you're not going to a church. Second, sort of a little bit further down the track now, that's false teacher. Huge label to put on somebody. Do it very carefully. Second would be a dangerous teacher. And this is the kind of guy that in the, uh, in the New Testament, we're told they're coming under a strict judgment of God because they may well be saved, but they're kind of fools. And they've taken the teaching role or the pastoral role at church, but 1 Timothy 1 talks about them as desiring to be teachers of the law. They have no understanding about what they are saying. These are the guys who are wrong on pretty serious things, like they misdefine very important things. They're unsafe. They're very close to heresy. And even though they don't hold heresy, 
they keep on telling you it's fine that other people do. You know, big tent Christianity. We don't need to judge other people's salvation. So he doesn't believe in the literal resurrection. Okay, So he doesn't believe that Jesus is literally God. Look, we all have our own struggles and sin in, sin in many ways. You, without, the first, without sin, cast the first stone. It's like a pilot that just doesn't care so much about the barometer reading. Like, like there's certain jobs that you have where you have to care about specifics. This is a dangerous teacher. He's like a drunk driver. Not a malicious murderer, but a drunk bus driver taking the kids to school. He ought to be stood down. He's unfit for the office. He, he may well be going to heaven, but he's damaging the ministry of real churches. He's shielding heretics by their defense, saying it's not a big deal. Why would you put them under church discipline? And so they work against their conscience. They will be judged harshly. And they, if they're teachable, they need training. It's like, like Peter from Paul. For a season, he was foolish, dangerous, but he came back in response to teaching. And thirdly, there's false shepherds. And these are guys who are not problematic because of their doctrine so much. It's not that they're, they may well be having the, a master's and a doctorate from the greatest upstanding, you know, reformed theological places. They may be able to answer all the questions on the exam perfectly and precisely. The problem with these false shepherds is not even necessarily that they're unsaved, but they're unsafe to be under because of their ministry practice. This is what Jesus called those who run away when the wolves come. False shepherds, hired hands, who care nothing for the sheep. These are the guys who do not chase away sexual or physical abusers from the congregation. Heretics can come on in and just feel the love and not be disciplined. They aren't uh, uh, dangerous or creepy people, aren't told to leave. You're just told to be more gracious with you and your child's safety. Just be more gracious. Get over it. I don't want to have that difficult conversation. Paul wrote to Titus about people like this, uh, about being a pastor in this context. And in Titus chapter 1, he says, Anyone who's going to be an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So every pastor, it's not like, oh, that's not my ministry. Every pastor needs to be able to define truth scripturally, explain the Bible's teaching, and then have the discernment and the wherewithal to actually attack the false teaching that is growing up. He needs to be able to do that. Not only, though, does he need to be able to do that, this is where the big difference comes in, he needs to be willing to do that. Because you can do that in an exam. But being willing to do it in the flesh is enormously different. That's what separates the boys from the men in terms of shepherding God's flock. And just to make sure that Titus was one of those men, Paul then says, there are many in your context, Titus, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They're still following you about your underpants, Titus. They're still on your case. What do you do? Do you sort of graciously let it go? Here's what he was told to do. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Make sure they're offended. That's what Paul's advice is. If you rebuke them and they say, thank you so much, Pastor, for this wise and gentle rebuke, you've failed. Rebuke them sharply. Make them Feel it. Make them uncomfortable. They're ruining Jesus' church so that they may be sound in the faith. There's the love. You go, where's all the love? The result is the love. 
What you're aiming at is the love. Restore them. Rebuke them. Cut those things off so that then they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Titus had to do that because those guys exist. These are false shepherds. Ezekiel 34 calls them unfaithful shepherds who feed themselves on the sheep but don't look after the sheep. They're unfit for the role, even if they know their theology. They need to either reform and repent publicly or be replaced quickly. If this is your pastor, pray for him and leave. Sheep need good shepherds, not good intentions. And fourthly, we have good shepherds. This is what the Bible speaks of, the faithful under-shepherds. 1 Timothy 3 talks about elders. Titus chapter 1 talks about elders. 1 Peter 5 talks about faithful shepherds. Hebrews 13 talks about the leaders who speak to you the word of God and are worthy of imitation. These are called elders, servants, pastors. They're spoken of as being able to teach, exemplify godliness, pour their life out for the gospel and the elect of God, and they have a conviction of doctrine and are able to stand up against those who are contradicting it. They have, in other words, grit. Sort of five Gs I worked through. I don't know why I made an acronym one day. I was feeling creative back in like 2021. Made an acronym. Wouldn't do it the same as uh, uh, again, but here we are. I've got an acronym for you. As we think through and pray through, and I sort of try and identify young men who may be, or older men, who may be called to the office of pastor. I work through these fives. First, giftedness. That is, do they have the resources within their faculty to be able to teach, to be able to learn? Uh, do they have the raw materials to be forged into something great? Are they able to learn? Can they study? Can they plan? Can they lead? That sort of stuff. Do they have the giftedness? Secondly, do they have a grasp? This is like, do they have an actual understanding of doctrine? They, they've made a fair, fair, fair progress in getting a grasp across what the New Testament calls the gospel and all things that the Old and New Testament put together in the scriptures. Thirdly would be godliness. Is their character, their holiness, their genuine love for people, how they treat their wife and family and visitors and hospitality, and are they generous? The next is that they have guts. Is another word for faith, that they have guts. They're willing to take a risk. They're willing to jump and willing to bleed. Like, like uh, the, the, the mindset I want in future pastors is that mindset of USA commander called Chesty. Great name for Chester. He was once in Vietnam, completely surrounded by the communist uh, war uh, 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 army. And he said to his gentlemen, they're in front of us, behind us. We are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us, 29 to 1. We are low on ammunition. They can't get away from us now. That's the kind of faith you want in pastors. Bring it on. The gates of hell are right there. They look solid brass. Jesus can smash it down. Let's go. And the last is grit. This is that they can persevere when the fighting is fierce because it's a rare day when the fighting's not fierce. Do they have grit? Can they swallow their blood and keep on fighting? Spit out their teeth like, um, like Campbell in Braveheart when, when the, the old fella is like 80 and he's fighting for the independence of the Scots and he gets an arrow to the chest on the top right side and he literally breaks it off keeps on killing Englishmen, holds up the, I know it's a movie, but I'm sure it happened, holds up the gate so that more Scots can, for, can, can flood into the English encampment. That's the kind of thing you want. Spit out the blood, it's hard, get over it, keep on running, keep on going. The sort of, the sort of feeling that goes, I can do this all day. That's the grit 
that pastors need. And here, Paul, in every one of those categories, is a tremendous example. He loves, do you hear his love in verse 5? He says, I had to stand against this. I was willing to be called a bigot. I was willing to be treated harshly, have a bad reputation, so that the gospel truth might be preserved for you. That's the love of a pastor. That's the love of Christian. That's the love of church members one to another, is that we stand firm, love. Like Luther said, love makes us bending. Faith makes us obstinate on the truths of the gospel for the sake of the mission going forward and the lost being saved. Do you, friend, stand fast? Do you stand fast? Do you stand firm, unshakable on the truths of the gospel, bending for love, but never on truth? And friends, even more importantly, have you believed in the only good news that Paul lived for, bled for, was willing to be cast out for? The reason this church exists, have you believed in the good news of Jesus? You know what that good news is? That though you're a sinner that deserves condemnation and punishment, God was delighted, God was pleased to make a way for you to be a child of him to be an eternally adopted son and daughter by your mere profession, act, trust of faith. As you, as you understand that Jesus died so you don't have to. He lived the life that you couldn't do. And he rose victoriously from death and is now seated in heaven. And he calls you, believe in me, trust in me. You'll be forgiven and added to God's family. That is worth dying for. But if you're not a believer yet, it is worth losing everything in order to receive it and trust in it. Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the stories of the great heroes of the faith, starting with the apostles and the apostle Paul, where we see by both example and command and principle that the gospel is worthy of our lives. Please, Lord God, make us those who, whether we have to fight a heretic tooth and nail, whether we have to do the planting of churches in hard areas, whether we have to go to the far reaches of the globe and be massacred for our faith, or whether for us it's constantly sharing the truth of the gospel in our local setting and supporting the work of a local church, whatever the calling is on each of us, we pray, Lord God, that you would make us faithful and zealous in it for the glory of Jesus and for the sake of the lost receiving the pure gospel message. Please save people in our midst tonight, Lord God, so that they can be saved from hell and glorify you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.